Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Tis the season for national strategic documents. Recently, here on A Better Peace, we had two guests to discuss the Biden administration's recently released national security strategy. Today, we are gathered to discuss the national defense strategy. This somewhat longer document, which appears first in classified form before its release in this unclassified version, outlines the Pentagon's priorities for this administration, identifying both changes and continuities in in American policy. In his introductory letter, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin echoes President Biden's comment that we are living in a, quote, decisive decade, unquote, and concludes that business as usual at the Department of Defense is not acceptable. So what does that mean in practice? What does this strategy tell us about Washington's plans to confront the pacing challenge of China or the aggression of Russia or any of the other potential threats that lurk in this ever complex world? To help us better understand the content and context of this strategic document, we are delighted to have with us two War College colleagues who study questions of strategic planning, Bob Bradford and Thomas Sparr. Bob Bradford, is the Associate Professor of Defense and Joint Processes and Henry Stimson Chair of Military Studies at the U.S. Army War College. He is in his seventh year on the Carlisle faculty after serving 30 years as an officer in the U.S. Army, the last 20 as an operations research analyst supporting enterprise decisions. Colonel Thomas W. Sparr is the chair of the Department of Military Strategy Planning and Operations at the Army War College. Colonel Sparr has a Ph.D. in history from The Ohio State University and teaches courses at the War College on military campaigning and intelligence. And we're delighted to have them both with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Thanks, Ron. So I want to start with you, Bob, to ask, what's the purpose of releasing an unclassified national defense strategy? Well, thanks, Ron. Beyond the purpose, it's required by law. Yeah. The Title X requires the SecDef to develop a national defense strategy every four years. And in the law, it requires him to release an unclassified version. Congress lists a number of items that should be in the NDS. I think there are about 10. Um, and it requires them, both classified and unclassified, to be provided to Congress and across the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. The purpose beyond the law is really to help synchronize the efforts of the department in achieving uh, the defense of the nation. Yeah. have uh, I'll ask you first this, Bob, and then I want to go to you, Tom. Have previous NDSs accomplished that, that last purpose that you mentioned? I think to different degrees, yes. They synchronize the actions of the department. I don't think that by themselves, they are a complete document that tells you exactly everything the Department of Defense is going to do. Right. But they do provide kind of the approach to the world that the Defense Department needs to take as it defends the nation. Mm, Makes sense. 
Tom, what's your sense of the, the historical value and purpose of national defense strategies? I think they're a cog in the process. Mm-hmm. They, they are, we receive many forms of strategic direction, right? This is more, this is formal strategic guidance, um, important if consistent with what is coming out uh, in forms of speeches, day-to-day interactions, closed-door meetings, social media. They, they, they all are, are important. Uh, this one probably more so uh, and to, to a certain degree. If I could go back, Ron, to the, the initial question, you had asked the purpose of the unclassified NDS, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because I think it is a little different than the, than the classified version. Um, the unclassified has a larger, larger audience than just the military, right? It's for the American public, our allies, our competitors, um, our adversaries. And, and the difference would be, uh, in the classified version, you're going to get, um, a little bit more uh, of capabilities and methods and, and, and Perhaps more important, uh, a more dis- a nuanced discussion of U.S. vulnerabilities, which you're certainly not going to see in the in the unclassified. And where that, that rings out in this one to me is in the risk portion, which is is almost always unsatisfying, mm-hmm. right? In these in these unclassified documents, for good reasons, right? We're not going to to, to demonstrate our, our vulnerabilities uh, to our to our adversaries. We're going to say, hey, we're taking risk here, uh, lest they exploit that. Right. I, it, I'm glad you you got to that because that gets the interesting question about you know, different audiences and what we're attempting to do. Uh, Bob, I want to go back to you then. So what would you think is the most important theme of, of this national defense strategy, assuming that that's, the goal is to grab the public's attention, at least to let them know what uh, the Pentagon thinks is most important? What's the most important theme? I think it's clear in this document, the pacing challenge facing the Department of Defense is China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their their rise, their challenges to the international order will require the most effort, the most different actions and investments by the department to counter that and to make sure that as they rise, uh, the nation remains secure. Mm -hmm. Tom, uh, related to that as well, when we talked about the national security strategy, there was a little discussion about the fact that it had been delayed for a while, um, in part by changes in, in the world environment. Now, one could imagine that the defense strategy could have, that, that emphasizes the Chinese threat could have been written pretty early. Um, how do we think, say, the war in Ukraine has changed any, uh, not, not just the rhetoric, but the actual nature of American strategy? I think it has made some of the vulnerabilities uh, more clear, mm-hmm. uh, specifically um, our vulnerability in the industrial base, I think, has has become clear, and this made us really as an have an, as an example of that. When we look at the, the number of the amount of munitions per, having to be produced uh, in the Ukraine to support that effort, it's really made us re- reflect a, a little bit uh, upon it. So, so that that was the major thing. I'm not. I'm again. I'm unsatisfied in why it took so long. Yeah. Um, I think probably because it was it was waiting on the NSS. It was as these things are supposed to be sequenced, right? The NSS is going to inform the NDS and, and thus forth, which will eventually uh, inform the budget. Um, but it doesn't seem like there was that's that's much uh, that, that that couldn't have come out earlier. Now, of course, I I give it, uh, the administration credit in that the the 
classified version did come out much earlier mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. national defense strategy, right. uh, which is important for for those that are that are formulating the budget and trying to trying to pl- to plan forward. Right. Well, and you mentioned you said the B word, Tom. You mentioned budgets, and so Bob, I got to go back to you. Right. You study the defense enterprise. If strategy is rescuing choice from circumstance. Uh, to use my favorite semi-quote from Henry Kissinger. Um, How does this NDS reflect choices that either have been made or are going to be made in the shape and size of the enterprise? Well, that's an excellent question, Ron. I I think it it telegraphs some of those choices. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily make them explicitly in this unclassified version, or to be honest, even in the classified version. Um, But if China is the pacing challenge, if Russia is an acute threat to the world environment, if we need to maintain resilience against future uh, environmental challenges, then that clearly directs different types of investments that we might make. Now, you you quote Kissinger. My favorite theoretician of strategy is Rick Rumelt. He's a business school guy. He wrote the book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. When I worked at SOCOM, General Votel put it on his reading list and I read it. In the bad strategy portion, he actually cites some of the documents that come out of the national (laughs) security policy process, right? As bad strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think uh, that's because they're not complete strategies in and of themselves. They're documents that provide part of the strategy. Rumelt said the kernel of a good strategy is three things. It is a uh, clear diagnosis of the conditions or the problem that you're facing. It's a guiding policy or principle for attacking that problem. And third, it is a set of coherent actions that address that. I think this document does the first of those pretty well. The diagnosis of the challenge are changes on the world landscape that will make deterrence more difficult and could make the world less secure. So we need to address that. Mm -hmm. What is the guiding principles for addressing that? And I think um, Tom might be able to talk to these better, but it's the things like integrated deterrence, campaigning, dealing with allies and partners, and building a resilient ecosystem. So those are there. The coherent actions are not in this document, and you won't expect to see them. They're not even in the classified document. What this document does, it sets up those coherent actions, which you'll see in subsequent documents from the department. Things like the budget. So the 23 budget was submitted um, a little bit after the, the document came out in classified form, the 24 budget should align to this. We should see more investments in things that show that the competition with China is important. Mm-hmm. The st- capability uh, uh, planning guidance or the contingency planning guidance, the guidance for the employment of the force, those are classified documents. The defense planning guidance, all classified documents. We're not going to see them in the open source, but we can see the budget. And we can see deployments of forces. We can see things like the exercises with Korea last week. Um, and these things are how we will see what the department says, whether it's aligning its deeds with its words here in this document. Right. That does remind me of one of my other favorite apocryphal quotes that I don't even know who first said it, but is a, show me your budget and I'll tell you your strategy. Um, you, you, you might want to say your strategy is something else, but if I don't see you spending money on it, I, you're, you're showing me your strategic preferences. Um, Tom, you wanted to jump in on that too? 
Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that. Just the best I last I believe it. I believe Senator Biden, back when he was a senator, <laughs> president, said said that at one point. So it's interesting you bring that one up. I I, I agree with with Bob. Um, it, it's the choices are not clearly articulated, but you you can read between the lines a bit. Uh, and one that that comes up uh, repeatedly is discipline. And discipline, in fact, the one slide we have on in the forthcoming national military strategy talks about uh, discipline as one of the themes. It says we are going to be more focused. We're going to do rigorous prioritization and not spend money on, on other, other competing priorities. I, I sense when I read this a, a certain disappointment by the authors in our actions of the, of the previous years. Because this isn't new, this rhetoric of, of we're really going to focus uh, this time on, on the threat. And, and it is clearly clearly China at this point and some of our future systems. Um, this is, of course, bad if you're serving in the Middle East and Africa or you're in a country in, in, in South America, uh, but perhaps necessary if we're truly going to focus on uh, the, the great, great power competition in some of these in, in important uh, systems. And to me, an, an example um, of this, and it is, when it's discussing integrated deterrent, uh, integrated deterrence, it, it, it mentions in the past department approaches to deterrence has too often been hindered by competing priorities. And this theme just comes back again and again and again. When you read this section on the Middle East, it starts with, in the first sentence, it says, we're going to continue to right-size its forward military presence in the Middle East. And to me, right-size means downsize, right? It's going to get smaller there. And, and then uh, it, it emphasizes almost at the end of each of the topics Hey, we're going to do great things here and we're going to be prepared for these contingencies, but not at the expense of eroding readiness for the priority, mm. which is the PRC, which is which is China. Um, and I think I think Afghanistan is a prominent example uh, of this, of what the administration plans to do in terms of not continuing missions that that suck up time and resources in order to focus. Um, and of course, that's that's a difficult thing to do. And I've been on the other end of that, you know, as serving as a chief of staff in Afghanistan, arguing over ISR. Uh, hey, why do I deserve it? Because we lost two soldiers three days ago because we're, we're the only ones being shot at. Uh, so it's not always possible and it's it's not always uh, politically feasible, uh, probably to, 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 to do what they say uh, they're going to do. You know, uh, I, I can't resist the temptation to bring up something that's probably never been done in a discussion of the national defense strategy, and that is to note that Michel Foucault's famous book is entitled Discipline and Punish. And so if we're going to discipline the force and discipline the budget, somebody's going to get punished. And we know who we work for, the three of us, so I'm just going to ask it. Is this bad for the Army, Bob Bradford? I, I'd say no. Okay, good. Yeah. You think? And I, I'd say that be, be, it... it well, bad for the army. I don't think it's bad for the army. I think it will require the army to reshape itself mm -hmm. to be most effective against the primary challenge that's discussed in this document. Mm -hmm. So if the army for 20 years was BCT focused, really looking at supporting um, lower scale contingencies, I know people that fought in Iraq and Afghanistan didn't feel them that way at the battalion and below level, but from an army level, that's what they were. Mm -hmm. Um to focus, to be ready for a large scale combat operation, perhaps in the Pacific. Now, is the army the lead for that? I would say that the army's probably not the lead in the Pacific, probably a supporting command, uh, supporting arm with some cases where it is the lead, but what does the army need? The army needs more long range fires. The army needs more protection. 
the Army needs more uh, logistics. That is, those are our responsibilities in the DOD functions manual um, that we probably need to invest more in. So I don't think it's bad for the Army. Mm-hmm. I think it might help the Army prepare for the future that is uh, forecast in this document. Right. Well, and and as, as Tom said, I, I like the way you put that too, Bob, that if this is also the continuation of many years of uh, leadership in Washington saying that the United States needs to pivot towards Asia in one form or another. We need to move away from excessive focus on on other challenges, which I and and that then requires a belief that there are some things we're not going to do or we're going to do less of. Um, and what in this document, uh, you know, Tom, you mentioned the idea that uh, the right sizing of our commitment to the Middle East. What other things would you would we draw from this that we should consider that we are likely to see the United States military do less of as a result of this strategy? I think it's it's going to be across each of the different AORs, not just the the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And they'll probably say we're not we're not going to do less, but we're going to do different okay. with integrated deterrence using using other instruments of of national power, particularly uh, allies and and partners, which is a a theme of this. Again, it's always a theme of the national defense strategy, but a matter of degree here. Um, it became so common as I was reading through. I just I, I ran a search on it, and the term allies and partners came up a hundred and seventeen times throughout the document, and then the word allies, I believe was 462 or something like that. So it is definitely at, at, a, at a higher uh, level of emphasis in this, this document that we will be leveraging um, allies and partners more and, and other, other forms, you know, economics. And I think, again, we come back to, to Ukraine and, and how we have, have used that instrument of, of national power uh, to punish the Russians. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, this, is, this takes more than a military problem. And that's kind of the core of integrated deterrence. We recognize that this is not a war we want to go to mm-hmm. with, with Russia in a military realm. So we have to deter them and not only in, in using the military, uh, but with other instruments of power in other areas of the world, with other allies um, in, engaged uh, and across the, the different domains, notably space and cyber are much more prominent in this document than, than, in, than in past. All right. Bob, do you see that as well? As, as we talk integrated deterrence, it is in the national security strategy, but Secretary Austin said it first, right? So it is kind of the Defense Department's uh, first of the whiteboard, if you want to use a planner's term. <laughs> right. Um, so what is integrated deterrence and, and how does it work? To me, this is kind of like Tom Sawyer in the fence. The defense department needs other people to paint the fence. Yeah. We can't paint the fence, nor are we equipped to paint the fence. Um, so, uh, you know, integrated deterrence, uh, undersecretary call talks about integration across domains, across regions, across the spectrum of conflict. Well, those things, the defense department rules across tools of the U S government. Well, we don't control all those, right? Mm-hmm. We need to get mm-hmm. treasury commerce, um, state and others to play in this, uh, justice. And then the other integrated deterrence allies and partners. So we need our allies to be good at deterring our lead adversaries. And so I think one thing we'll see investment in is more security cooperation, things like we're already doing in Ukraine to help provide them the material and the training 
to do um, the task that's in front of them. Right. Uh, I think we'll see that in the Pacific. Um, and we've already seen it start, you know, the user packs, pathways program and all the rest of these things. We've seen it start, but we'll see it continue to be invested in with time and resources and manpower to, to make it clear that this is an important aspect of our strategy. The strategy requires other people to do stuff that we and the SecDef can't tell them to do it, right? He doesn't have directive authority of that over all these other things that aren't in the Department of Defense. Right. And so that's a, a nuance, a challenge. Uh, some have critiqued it, but I think it's good. Tom Sawyer got the fence painted, so he did it. we can do it. He, and he, good. he did it by making fence painting look fascinating, right? So we need to, we need to do a better job of making uh, uh, deterrence look fascinating so other people will be willing to do it. Tom? Yeah, so commenting on integrated deterrence, this is, of, of course, not new, right? We, we've, we've been deterring for years, and of course we want it to be, we, to be integrated. Uh, so I, had, I spoke with a friend of mine last week who serves as a planner in the Indo-PACOM region, and I just asked him, I said, hey, is, is there anything different in the way you're doing business uh, since integrated deterrence has, has come to play? And he kind of shook his head and said, not really. You know, we, we know we're supposed to be doing this uh, for years. We've been trying. Uh, but then I asked a follow-up question to him and I said, hey, hey, what about the cooperation with allies? Is that, has this changed anything in that realm? And he kind of got excited and his demeanor changed a little bit. And he said, well, yeah, actually it has. It actually has gotten better. We have allies that are, are more interested in, they're intensely interested in, in collaborating um, and we've gained additional authorities uh, to, to share some of our plans, usually at the display level. Uh, but that may be enough because it, it, it then it, it encourages uh, the, the allies and the partners to open up in the other direction and uh, show us some of their plans and their capabilities and confirm or deny some of the assumptions we've made about uh, what support allies can, can provide. Kind of like if you give them something, they're going to give, give something back. So, so the, the point is, while it's it's not new, and 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 some of it is is rhetoric. Sometimes that that rhetoric matters, and the allies and partners are hearing this this external messaging, um, 117 times. Right? We say we say allies and partners. They're they're hearing that, and it could be opening some doors uh, for our, our planners as we as we move forward in these difficult challenges. Well, and I I see that as a you know, that that of course will require relationships of trust. So that uh, if we're serious about allowing, about wanting allies and partners to do things, then we also have to be serious about letting them do them their way. And we also have to consider how patient we will be with watching them do it. Right? We don't want to fall into the parent science fair project, right, where you are, you're supposed to be letting the child do it, but when they're doing it badly, right? You step in and do it for them. And I'm not, I apologize in advance to all of our allies and partners who don't like the fact that I just compared the U.S. allied relationship to a parent and a child, the science fair, but it does get to a communication issue. And um, Bob, I want to go with you is how does a document like this, how does it get uh, communicated? How, how does one communicate this strategy to political stakeholders at home as well as to allies abroad? I mean, we can expect people to read it, I suppose, but you and I both know from uh, careers in the education biz that um, you know, just because you assign somebody the reading doesn't mean they're going to do it. So how do we communicate this? Well, I, I think the political stakeholders are are really important mm -hmm. uh, domestically. Now we're recording this before the midterm elections, so it'll probably come out after that. But but I, I can say that there's a, a highly partisan nature to the U.S. Uh, political discussion right now and discourse, yeah. and that makes things a little bit more challenging. But I'll say that the Secretary of Defense and his whole team need to do things to communicate this to our political stakeholders, particularly 
in the Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they are. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Call, the Undersecretary for Policy, had a 40-minute talk on this document last week at Brookings. Mm-hmm. I think they need to continue to do things like that as they as they roll out this out and try and get shared understanding. There is shared understanding. There's as uh, as we've talked about. There's a lot of coherence and continuation of the last strategy. Mm-hmm. There are differences in uh, a little bit of differences in maybe specific words or tone, but China as the pacing challenge is consistent with uh, the 2018 national defense strategy. And we'll just, I think most people agree with that where the political and partisan challenges come in or if it's not my idea, I don't like it. You know, if it's the other guy's idea, I'm going to throw rocks at it. I think we just need to help build a compelling story that makes sense and continue to repeat it. That's the best way we can overcome some of the um, political uh, challenges in communication. Makes sense. Ron, if I could add to that, the, the, uh, you know, actions matter too. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do our actions? In fact, that's one of the things that I like about this national defense strategy is that it, it does seem a little more consistent compared to the 2018, which was clearly Secretary Mattis, right? Was the was the was the driving force behind that? But it wasn't always as consistent uh, with the actions uh, across the administration, particularly in, in relation relation to our allies. And that's not a criticism. I think that perhaps is just a leadership style. Uh, this one seems more consistent, which I think is. He's easier on the military that's trying to, in turn, execute it. Um, and the question when it comes back to actions is, will we really include the allies and partners in the early phases of planning versus the here's our plan, show it to them, come on board kind of approach? Um, will we really prioritize diplomacy uh, or will we always default back to the big M and military to, to continue to lead, which, as Bob mentioned, is another concern with integrated deterrence? It's a great plan, but it really is not a military plan. It should be run right at the National Security Council level, at the, at the presidential level, driving it down. And that's how it has to be um, to, to be to be successful. Right. May, um, while we're talking about integrated deterrence, uh, there are two. You know, the the national defense strategy is is a document. Then there are two documents that are included with it, and it's a little unclear whether they are appendices or separate things as well. They're both pretty short, in part because they are declassified. But the nuclear posture review and the missile defense guidance, um, in both cases, right? You want to talk about deterrence. Right. For for people of a certain age, right, deterrence means one thing, right? And that means nuclear weapons. And uh, the nuclear posture review is is bare bones as one would expect it to be, um, because it's declassified. But how should we uh, how does the nuclear posture review reflect uh, the the same kind of concerns that are in the overall national defense strategy? The nuclear posture review clearly identifies that we need to invest in in some of our capabilities mm-hmm. that are aging, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's consistent with uh, previous uh, administrations. Now, there's some uh, just the sea launch cruise missiles, one that that comes in and goes out. It's it's out this time again. Uh, I think it's okay, but it's clearly we we will invest in that. Um, I, I think you know the whole NDS has four priorities, right? Defend the homeland. Strategic deterrence, that's what you're talking about. Right. It's the second priority. Right. These are an ordered list is ordered. <laughs> the third is to deter conventional attack and prevail if we have to fight against one of these large competitors. And then the fourth 
has to do with building a resilient joint force and defense ecosystem. So this, the second priority is strategic deterrence. Clearly, the nuclear posture review and missile defense review, which are required by Congress. It was, they were right. results of a National Defense Authorization Act, I think, that said, you got to give these to us. So why do we provide Congress reports? Because they tell us we have to. Why are they important? I think because we are still a nuclear power. Mm -hmm. It's still an important part of our power. And we want to make sure that we uh, help the world avoid nuclear war. Yeah, that's fair. Tom? And Ron, it, you know, I, I, to reiterate what Bob said, the fact that the, 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 the nuclear posture and missile defense were included, that's a clear statement of priorities, right? That we are concerned about hypersonic missiles, about uh, China's exploration and massive growth in missile technology and nuclear technology. Um, of course, you know, with uh, the, the Russians rattling their sabers in the nuclear realm, uh, we, we are concerned about uh, about that. Um, but but the, the, the third thing, playing a little bit again upon what, what Bob just said that we haven't talked about much is, is that uh, the theme of resiliency that comes out after we talk, you know, integrated deterrence is what this will be remembered for, uh, invariably the, the, but the, the, the third thing we address after campaigning is building enduring advantage. And that is all about, about resiliency. And that's because that threat to our number one priority, the homeland has become more real of late, um, particularly in the cyber domain, uh, with the, the colonial pipeline attack. In, in, in May of 2021, uh, you can reach the whole way back to the election, the 2016 election attacks. And then in space, we now know our adversaries have the capability to shoot down satellites and, and they've tested it, right? And they've demonstrated that capability and that we need redundancy in space because perhaps we are too reliant on our GPS systems. Uh, so, so those two uh, have been at keen areas that we're going to develop resiliency. And then I already mentioned uh, the industrial base and what we've learned um, mm -hmm. from the, from the Ukraine there. Right. Cause resilience being a, 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 a key idea here, the, the idea that deterrence isn't always going to work, um, that surprises can happen, but that we need to be able to survive and respond. Um, and that's hard, right? We, we live in a society where the very fact that a bad thing happens is taken as proof that somebody, somebody failed when you know, one could just easily say that bad things happen sometimes because the world is full of bad actors and sometimes bad things happen. But that gets to the, the the big final idea to bring this conversation back to the beginning is what does it mean to have a for, for the United States of America to have a national strategy when we all know that any strategy is, you know, it falls under the war college mantra of it depends. Um, you know, that I'm sure that when this, when this strategy was being drafted initially in 2021, um, there was not a plan to have a long discussion of a Russian action in Ukraine because it hadn't happened yet. Um, even though one could say that Russia was a threat in Ukraine even before they invaded. But what should we imagine? How should future strategic planners think about the way that we construct strategies that allow both some sort of specific sense of what we're getting ready for, but also reflect an awareness that the world can surprise us. I want to go first to you, Bob, and then to Tom. Oh, that's a great question, Ron. I, I think this is a really good document, mm -hmm. to be honest. I think it, it gives us a, a clear direction going forward. But I think a good part of what you know Congress put in their law, we got to do this every four years, We've got to readdress it every mm -hmm. once in a while and look at it and see, if, does it still make sense? Does it still the right 
place where I should focus my actions and my resource investments. I, I think this is a good start, but it is definitely a document of its time. This is the 2022 National Defense Strategy. Right. It's not the 2026 National Defense Strategy. It's not the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Something will happen between now and the next one, and and we will change our strategy. And I think that's a good thing. Strategy needs to be evolutionary, needs to change with the environment. And uh, I think they've done a pretty good job assessing the environment. But as you say, we will be surprised by something. Mm -hmm. The concept of resilience, you know, as a guy that has helped build uh, programs before, is expensive. It's expensive. Right? We've, we need we need a we need a more robust network. We need sometimes redundancy is one way to be resilient. Sometimes uh, duplication is one way to be re resilient, or hardening of key nodes is another way to be resilient. All are going to cost some resources, and so while it is uh, easy to say it'll be harder to do. Because in resourcing, we don't have infinite money. We have a lot, but we're going to have to make some choices. And somebody's somebody's kid is going to get told they're not on the Little League team. And that's always tough. There you go. That's a, I, I like that. Uh, Tom, any final thoughts on the National Security Strategy or on Little League Baseball? <laughs> no. A couple, couple great, great lead-ins there, though. You know, we need to revisit assumptions and continue to assess risk. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news to me in this is that there's more continuity here amongst across administrations than there are differences, right? The, the changes, as we mentioned, are finite. Um, and it, there is a nice portion in the end there that, that talks about risk. While short and unsatisfying, one of the things it identifies that, that Bob just hinted at is, is implementation, the risk in implementation. If we are unable to make the hard choices, right, or to overcome the inertia of our system, right, it's, it's not easy to cut a program if it's in a congressional district, right, of a powerful senator in order to channel that money towards something that, that may be uh, more important. Uh, that's a risk. That's a risk they identify and I think is is a reality uh, both for the internal bureaucracy and the external distraction of, of challenges that, that persists in, in Ukraine or other places across the globe. Right. Well, there you go. Well, here at the War College, we talk about our about strategy formulation. We talk about suitability, acceptability, feasibility, and risk. Uh, it's important to keep those things in mind. If it was easy to do, everybody would do it. Um, because it's hard to do, it's a good thing that we have smart people like Tom Sparrow and Bob Bradford to help us to understand it. So thanks very much to you, Tom, and to you, Bob, for joining us here on A Better Peace to talk about the 2022 National Defense Strategy. And I promise you that, uh, if possible, we'll bring you back in 2026. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. Thanks to both of you. And thanks all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice because that is a choice you should want to make to be prepared for the future. Um, and after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast on said podcatcher so that other people can find out about us. We're always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so, until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. 
Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.